Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Jason and Brian here again, continuing our discussion on courage. And as you guys know, we've been going through the four pillars that we based our Mission 300 program on, identity, strength, courage, and influence. And as I said, today we're kind of wrapping up this discussion on courage. We've got some really cool stuff to get into today, so uh, let's dive right in. Um, I want to hit on two, two parts of the subject that we came up with last week. Uh, the first one was, how did Jesus let this come out? Because he walked courageously. And so he gave he gives a good picture of how he had to walk through the outside influences versus what was on the inside and how to articulate that decision. And also um, to tie in to where our program Mission 300 even came from of the name 300. And how did God choose the men and why? Did the army come down to 300? And I think that will bring some interesting insight that you might not have looked at before. So that's where we're going to go with this morning and maybe a couple stories of some things that are happening with our guys as a result of this transition for them. And we want to get to sort of settling this decision that goes um, goes on inside of each of us when we're faced with something that we're inspired to do, but you kind of feel like you're held back because of you know, whatever outside or seemingly inside voices or influence that are going on. And most of you, I'm sure, know what that feels like. And if you haven't experienced something like that, you're not doing anything important or you will pretty soon. But a lot of times there is this battle that goes on when there's something on your heart to do, but there's there's almost this war and it feels like it's on the inside of you. And having to discern the voices on that without without sounding schizophrenic um, it can be something that's a bit tricky to walk through at times because we don't really see a ton of examples, you know, practically or in the Bible on someone that went through that process and came out the other side with courage, with determination, and understanding how to figure out which voice is coming from where. But that's something we want to get into today. As a Christian, there are a couple things, there are many things that are actually given to you, which we've discussed before with identity and strength, but we're given his spirit. So the way he thinks, his mind, his thoughts are given to us. And so we could spend time in that later. I don't want to exhaust this uh, podcast regarding that, but it's been given to you. So now it's learning how to articulate the other influences and the haze of your old way of thinking, the haze of the old behaviors that have are trying to come back and re-influence who you really are and your identity and your the strengths that you have and the mind that you've been given to. So there comes a, a confident point. You're not trying to establish necessarily a new way of thinking. You're really trying to establish what the way of thinking is that's on the inside of you and your the mind of Christ that's been given to you and letting that come out. And again, there's great opposition to that, and that is probably the biggest rustle. And we see that in the life of Jesus. It begins, uh, Luke chapter 4 and Matthew talk about him. He goes down to the Jordan River. He's baptized. Uh, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. Side note, there was no dove that came down. He was like a dove in how he descended. So, just for those who know, the God Spirit's not this timid little bird that's easily fluttered away. As you read the Old Testament, when the Spirit of God came on someone, it wasn't like a little dove at many times. So just as a little side note, chalk that away for a future reference point. 
But after he receives who he is, the voice from heaven comes out and says something. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So to everybody heard it that was there, and it was established of who he was. But I don't think those words came for the people. I believe those words came for him, because then it says the Spirit of God leads him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What an interesting oxymoron at some times when you, you look at that picture. So let's lay, let's lay it out just from the story point. And here we have Jesus. He knows who he is. God's spirit is on him. He's empowered. He's been given the strengths. He's been given his gifts. He's been given those things. But now he has to go and face the dragon in order for that to become solidified in him. And it wasn't that God was going to take him to be tempted. Because God doesn't tempt people. What he was doing, he was taking who Jesus was and what he's been given, and he was going to bring him through that point. But he was going to stand up in who he was and face this dragon so that way he could walk in authority over it and in power and dominion over it versus always being under. So it's almost more like a coach preparing a kid for a game. And you train and you train and you train, but now you got you you play some games, but now you're hitting the state championship. And this is what you've been playing for for the whole season. And so I bring you to the field to play because I know you have what it takes to play this game. I know you have what it takes as a team to beat this opponent. So it wasn't like, okay, I'm going to let the opponent beat on you and punish you, and find out all your weaknesses in you. No, I prepared you, but unless you're put into a place of conflict, or a place of challenge, or a place of uh, competitiveness where you actually have to utilize those things in that manner, you won't know what you really have. It's just theory. It's just ideas. It's just, how do I feel good about myself? So that is really more of the context of him going into the wilderness. So we, we know he's in there for 40 days. And he got hungry. Uh, I know I get hungry after um, about four hours. I'm being a little bit uh, humorous about that. But imagine 40 <laughs> days. And we could go through, scientists have said that your body starts going into starvation mode at that point. We know people have gone longer than 40 days. But the whole, the whole issue is when it says that um, at this point, he's at his most vulnerable place. Um, I'm just trying to create a scenario so I know... I'm not under-spiritualizing who Jesus was or trying to diminish that he is the Son of God. What I'm trying to bring out, he had to go deal with the same stuff we did. Otherwise, he's not an example. He didn't come as a human. And so he's all God, but he's also all human. So he hits this place. And I find it interesting that before Satan comes and tempts him, he makes a statement, if you are the Son of God. So before each temptation, if you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, turn the stone to bread. And of course, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, by every word of God. So he's making a declaration of what he believes as this idea of wanting to eat the bread, eat, turn the stone to bread is happening. He's being challenged, well, if I am the Son of God, I should be able to do this. But he counters it with what his belief is in. The word of God and who God is. Then he comes again in uh, Matthew, puts it in a different order. But in Matthew, he says, he came, he brought him to the high temple and says, 
if you are the son of God, cast yourself down and the angels will catch you. Again, catch what the first thing is. If you're the son of God, then the angels obviously must be for you. Why don't you prove it? And of course, he quotes, quotes the scripture, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So he's, he's bringing things back to his pillar beliefs. But then the third one happens in Matthew. Luke also brings this up, but this, I want you to catch this. Then the devil's taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me. I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all this will be yours. Now, here's the truth of this, this temptation. The, the devil doesn't use complete falsities to tempt us. He used twists of truth to tempt us. And the truth was, Satan did have the power over the earth. Satan did have control over the kingdoms of the earth because man gave it up to him in the garden. This is what Jesus was coming back for. So I want you to imagine you're hungry, you're tired, you're questioning your identity. All right? There, there's a question there. Well, if I am the son of God, then this is mine anyway. Why not just take it this way? Wait a second. This could be mine this way. This would be a much easier journey. All right? So he's rustling through all of these different questions, but at the core of every temptation is his identity. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It was the first time he addressed the author of those words. Every other time, it's, he's rustling through those things. Now, I'm adding subjecture, but it's interesting. On the, on the last temptation, he, he addresses because he knows who's actually doing the talking. And I think he, I, I'm convinced that he had to learn, is this me talking? Is these, are these my feelings? Are these God feelings, like wanting me to step forward into something? Or is this the enemy's words? But in that last one, he heard who the enemy was, and it was the first time that he addressed the enemy. And he said, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him shall you serve. In other words, I'm not going to bow down and worship you. So he comes out of the garden, and he goes into the temple in Nazareth. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were at the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And it says, They all bore witness and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, Is this not but Joseph's son? I, I, this whole picture is really amazing. I mean, I, I wonder how many times that when, when the temptation came, well, if you really are the son of God, do this, if. And I wonder how many times he remembered the voice of God speaking over him at the river. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. See, every temptation was to prove who he was. And he didn't have to prove it because he knew. But then when he comes out of that place, 
His identity and strength are established on the inside of him. He knows the differentiating of the voices. And no longer again does he ever wonder, oh, is that God talking? Is that me talking? No, that's the enemy talking. And he addresses the enemy for who he is. And I think this is just really a powerful moment, but I want you to catch, he comes out, he establishes himself in, in, in confidence, they hear his gracious words, his words of confidence and assurance that he is coming to do something courageous. This is what he's going to do. He's declaring to everybody, I'm going to set things in order. I am the deliverer. And then they said, but is this not Joseph's son? And I find it interesting, the humans still want to bring them back, just like in Moses, bring him back to something more uh, mundane that they can discount what he's saying. And so when we're talking about courage, there's a lot of voices. There's a lot of reasonings. And I think with all three of those temptations, they dealt with motive. They dealt with, I need my needs met. The other one dealt with, well, does he really care for me? What if I fell off this place? Would he really care for me? We, we challenge the security of, who, of our father to us. See, we're, we're considering ourselves in, in those two things. The third one was, hey, I can give you an easier way to get the things that you're actually coming to get. I'll make it easy for you. I'll, I'll make you glorious. I'll make you praised by all the people instead of praised by God. Just worship me. And so all of those motives had to be dealt with in those voices. And when, when we're challenged in our thoughts, it's coming after your identity. And when we can distinguish that, then we have to think about, why am I tempted to do that? Because the motive is still self-protection, self-serving, self-lifting, all, all three of those. But when Jesus comes out now, he makes this bold statement that this scripture right here is me. And then people still challenge it, but you could say, well, that's kind of arrogant. Where's the humility in that? It was, remember, his words were gracious. It was absolute humility because when you establish what you are inside, you may seem overconfident to some, but actually it's a place of absolute humility because you accept what you really are. And there's a power in that. So that is, it probably ties a little bit more at the beginning to identity and strength. But it is the transition point for courage and influence to actually happen. Because if you listen to what he came to do, it would take all the courage. But those two pieces had to be established. Well, this is so important that Jesus was led into this. And I'd say this is the, the first big act of courage that you see in his life, is this journey into the wilderness. And it's so crucial that we see it for what it is, him being led there, because there's no other way to utilize the identity and the strength that you've been given, except for going into the battle and facing your enemy. And I think that's something he understood 100% in that moment. You know, there's people that'll say, that's God leading us into temptation. And like you said, we don't want to get into a big theological debate on this, but I do think it's interesting that psychologists now understand that you don't, you don't improve someone by trying to make them less afraid. You don't improve someone's mental or psychological well-being by removing them from any fear, removing them from any circumstance that could cause discomfort. You can't do that. The world is, is too full of problems and things to make a safe space everywhere for someone. But what you can do is make them more brave. 
and teach them how to confront the bad things and to show them that they can actually be overcomers in that. Even just remove the spiritual side of it, natural worldly psychologists are understanding this, and they're, they're seeing that this is how human beings operate. And if you, if you try to create an environment where you're removing the idea of, of any conflict, then people just crumble because you're, that's just not how things work. And so we've got to see the importance of going into the wilderness like this and how much of a courageous act it is. And so I think the other thing that does is it helps us identify more with Jesus. At least for me it did when I understood this part of his of his journey. Because there can be a tendency for some of us to to think Jesus never really had to go through anything difficult like this. Or not just from a temptation standpoint, but that he never had to question, you know, whether he was hearing the voice of God or the voice of someone else. But he actually had to walk through this the same way we do. And if he had to walk through it, then we can walk through it too. And if he came out successful, then we can come out successful too. We can learn how to discern those voices and ultimately to make the decisions that we need to because we're called to be courageous people. And it's the most frustrating thing in the world. And I would think the vast majority of people listening can relate to this. It's so frustrating when you're at this decision point and you just don't feel like you know what God wants you to do. You don't feel like you know where he wants you to go if he wants you to go left or right, and your your main prayer is, God, I just want to hear your voice in this scenario. I just want to hear your will in this situation. And so this is such a comforting thing to know that it's doable, it's possible. And you know, it, it comes to my mind, I don't remember if we've talked about this before on the podcast, but there's a scripture that a lot of people will go to where it's, you know, uh, eye has not seen, nor ears heard, nor entered into the heart of man, the things that God has planned and has in store for those he loves, and all that stuff. And we'll take that verse, and it's kind of just the shrug of, well, you know, maybe we don't know what God's going to do. But if you read the very next verse, it says, but God has revealed them to us. So we've got to make sure to read the context of these things, too, because it's so clear in Scripture, God's not holding out on us. He's not hiding things from us. He's not just putting this shroud over things and leaving it up for us to discover. He's actively speaking to us actively wanting us to take that next step. But you don't get that unless you go through the wilderness. I think it's interesting. Um, Ephesians 5.17 says, For this reason do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is. I think sometimes those arguments get in the way, but I, but I think we can go all the way back to what we started with begin with. If everything is really about your identity— and I can make you feel less than, you're going to attack or you're going to critique or you're going to be um, self-abased confronting someone who knows who they are. And so it's not, I don't think there really is as much of a struggle of knowing what God's will is as it is a struggle of not believing the other words that have been spoken over us that we're less than. I mean, you think about the children of Israel just for a moment again, and you go back to Pharaoh was afraid of the children of Israel, so he oppressed them, and he oppressed them long enough till they believed they were too small. Yet they were the greatest, which is why Pharaoh oppressed them. And if you can believe things from that lowly place, you'll always be wondering what the will of God is, because God's speaking to who you really are. And if he's speaking to who you really are, we won't understand 
if we want to keep living in that lowly place. But if we step into the place, this is who you say what you say about me. You call me the beloved son. You call me the beloved. You say you're well pleased with me. You say I'm complete in you. You say that I have your spirit. You say that just like a father, a natural father wouldn't give uh, his child a, a stone if he asked for bread. How much more will your father give you his spirit searching all the things, the deep things of God. So he gives us all these things because he wants us to know who we are. And when we know who we are, that's where true humility lies and power and grace and meekness that changes the world. And it's courageous. And so uh, these become really critical po components when we look at this. So how does all of this tie in to the story of Gideon and uh, his 300 men? I really wanted to get to that. Well, Judges chapter 3 talks about how, in the story, Gideon goes down with 32,000 men. Those that were afraid, he sent home. So all those that were fearful got sent home. That left 10,000. Then he takes them down to a watering hole, because God says there's still too many. Some kneel and drink, and others, cup. it says they cup their hand and they lap like a dog. Those remained. So there was 300, so 9,700 more went home. When you look at this, many of the Bible stories and the, the different ways that we've looked at this from Christianity was God wants to show that he uses all the weak things, the insecure things, the feeble things, the little things to make something great. Now there is a point to that where God uses the weak things of this world to confound the wise. He didn't say he uses weak things. He says he uses weak things in the eyes of the world to confound the wise. Very different. Hmm. According to the Israel Institute of Biblical Studies, they talk about this and it's very consistent with other things that I've read and uh, very consistent with how scripture actually reads. Reminds you, we're not looking at people that think low of themselves. We're looking at people that are accepting the idea of how God viewed them. So Gideon was a strong man. I mean, he was courageous. He just was fearful, and his identity was, was kind of broken. But when God came and lifted his identity through the messenger telling him who he really was, he was learning to walk in that. So let's just break down those, those two people, the lappers and the ones that kneeled. So the lappers used a single cupped hand in the same way that a dog uses his tongue to scoop up a portion of water and to flick it into their mouths quickly. Much wa water is lost in the process, but it is quick and it's easy. This would mean that the lappers are not lying on their bellies, but rather crouching down, still standing on their feet. They remain alert and unexposed, which is crucial on the battlefield. The kneelers, by contrast, are fully prostrated down on their knees beside the spring. They too drink by using their hands, but in a different way. Their two hands are joined to form a bowl, which they can comfortably sip. Although this is better and less wasteful method of getting water into one's mouth, the kneeling position leaves a soldier vulnerable to attack because he has his face to the ground. Gideon needed an elite force of 300 alert soldiers who would not endanger themselves by taking long water breaks. So insofar as they are dog-like, the lappers were not chosen because they were more vicious and vulgar than the kneelers, but because they were less self-indulgent. And I thought that was a powerful statement, and it's part of the principle 
that we've used from the very beginning when we came up with 300, that we're out there actually creating environments to draw out the 300. Now keep in mind, the 300 ended up liberating and setting free by defeating the Midianites all the other people that went home. So everyone benefited from this 300. But this 300, there's only a few that ever come out. And that idea of not being self-indulgent, another word, is not being self-focused, not being self-needed, not, not doing these things for the benefit of self-interest, but for the benefit of the bigger picture. And so the 300 were these men. And so that is why we modeled our program after 300, is we can't help everybody. But if we could get to the right few, those few benefit everybody. And so that has been the target, and we've seen that happen over the years. You know, there's there's something else that can be really seen from this whole picture. And again, I never want to come to a place where someone listening or someone we're working with or communicating with, where they're dealing with insecurity, they're dealing with inferior, inferiorities, they come from an environment where things, they're trying to walk their way out of that. At no point is this a indictment or a place of condemnation. It is just a place of reality that we can get to. But these men and women throughout Scripture, you look at Esther, she was one of those people. She had to let go of her family, Mordecai, to step into the king's palace and then to step before the king. It's not a male or female. It is this idea that there is something bigger to the value of why I exist that will benefit and influence the world around you, but then you walk out of it fully fulfilled that you're at peace because you know what you are. That's why I don't think we fully understand how the martyrs felt, what any of the disciples that were that were killed for what they believe. We, we look at that from our weak point, like, oh, let's prevent that, let's prevent that. Well, obviously, we don't want that to happen. We're not looking for, hey, let's start martyring again. We can have, see a lot of courageous people. What I'm saying is, though, they didn't consider their life like we consider their life. They, their home was in heaven. This was something, they lived here, like Paul said, I would rather go, but it's better that I stay for you. Like, gee, Paul was ready to go on. He was ready to go spend his eternity with Jesus. But for the sake of the people, he stayed. His whole life was courageous because he didn't live from what he can get out of it. He lived for what he could give into it. And I think that is a big transition point with courage that we, we try to get to. And again, everything is about going after your identity. It, it is at the end of the day, a word, a force, or something else could come into you and say, you're not what you think you are. If you really are that, this wouldn't be happening. It's not about what's happening. It's about an attack on who you are. And when you remain settled in that, you end up overcoming the thing that's after you because you're no longer influenced by it. But then you walk out as a contribution of victory for everyone else around you. So to anybody listening who feels like they're in that insecure line right now, like you feel like you're one of the people that would have been dismissed, you wouldn't have made the cut for the 300, whatever it is, there's this quote that my my wife heard on the radio, and I don't know if it was from uh, a speaker, a pastor, or if it was lyrics to a song or what it was, but it's this very powerful quote that was profound to me. You're not broken. You just don't know who you are. 
And the thing that holds most people back when they're feeling insecure is that they don't feel like they have anything of value or enough of value to contribute to the problems that are going on around them. And that's not true. That is, that is a complete lie of the enemy. It's similar to, to the temptations that people have faced throughout all of history. Because if the enemy can't get you to stop what's on your heart to do, then he can try to convince you that you can't accomplish it. So he'll make you feel insignificant and insecure. So if he's trying to get you to feel that way, that's kind of an indicator that you're not. In fact, it goes back to identity. I mean, you've been given the same spirit that Jesus has, the same spirit that all of us have. It's not like God hands out his spirit at different levels to different people. And, you know, not to get into a big theology debate on that, maybe people operate differently, and some people are more in the foreground, some people are more in the background, and and we have our, our worldly natural measurement systems that make us feel higher or lower depending on where we line up in that hierarchy, sure, but your core, your identity is the same. It's the same that Jesus was given. So there's nothing insignificant about you. You're just not realizing and accepting who you really are. And the second that starts to click, man, you'll see, you'll see changes happen in your life. You'll see changes happen in the way you perceive things. And it's not that the circumstances around you are necessarily going to change overnight, but like we've talked about before here, your perspective on who you are in those circumstances will change. And that's a much, much bigger asset than having the circumstances change. Because like I mentioned before, even just from a psychological aspect, if I can remove a bad situation from your life, that's okay, but you're going to have another one come up the next day. And so it's much more beneficial if I can just show you that you are strong enough, powerful enough, and significant enough to take on whatever's coming at you. This really ties into, uh, we went through, like what I was sharing with you earlier, we, were, we went through um, several of our guys that we've noticed significant maturity that's happened over the years. And so we were asking them, what, what was the line that changed? When did that change? Part of it was the right environment um, gave opportunity for them to see it. But they all said, when we saw something different could happen, when we saw something different, and I thought that was a powerful moment is I said, well, define it a little bit more for me. He said, well, like when a child becomes an adult, there's something that triggers that I no longer want to be a child. And it reminded me of First Timothy's put away childish things and childish things are all the things that you're not that you're not responsible. You can just live life and free wheel, but you're really not responsible for anything. And again, that word responsibility takes on sometimes, oh, I got to be responsible. I'm not referring to someone else putting it on you. I'm referring of you taking ownership of something in your life that you take the responsibility. You take a response to the ability that's been given to you. So you respond. I was asking, as I was going through this, when did that transition? One of our staff, he's been with us for seven years, but before he became staff, he was more interested in riding motorcycles, hanging out, playing football and doing this, but he he's grown and now he he's no longer like that. Like, um, in fact, we have new guys coming into the program now just because of how his life has changed because they visited before, but they weren't really interested. But when they seen what his life has done, now they're coming back to become part of the program. So I was asking him, I said, what happened? What, what was the moment that you went from being a child to being a man? 
He said, when I want, when I could see a different future and what I was doing was holding me back from getting there. So I owned it and took the responsibility of it. And I thought that was a real powerful communication of what was taking place. And we've seen this in a lot of the guys and that's courageous. And the real big issue is courage. If you're to simplify it into something, it has a lot to do with letting go of something that you've held on to and grabbing onto something new that you're not fully sh- not tested in but you believe is the right is right and it's that letting go and it's like rock climbing you cannot reach forward unless you let go and you could try holding on to a grip for a long time but eventually your hands going to get tired and you're going to fall but you may fall reaching forward but your head's always up and you're going to keep moving that direction but you have to let go of the one grip to grab onto the new And that really is that transition of courage where Jesus was cared for. He was loved. He was treated well. He goes down to the river. God speaks with an audible voice for everybody here. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Side note, he hadn't done anything yet. So those are wondering if I do a bunch of things, God will love me. God loves before. We need that in advance. That's where grace comes in, that you are loved right where you're at in order that who you really are can fully come out and be viewed to the world around you. And in that moment, that is being challenged. And he had to go back to those things. He had to go back to, in the temptation, where is my source of happiness in this? Where is my source of fulfillment in this? Hey, I'm the son of God. I This is what I am. And so um, we saw this again with our guys when they, we, we asked one, Uh, one of our staff, who's changed the most? And they gave this guy's name. And I said, what have you seen in him? And he said, he quit being childish. And I thought these were the words. They they were just using words that they could relate to uh, based on these young men and being a child to being a man. And that transition point, but it all came, that is a courageous act. Because letting go of being childish means letting go of what fulfills you right now, the temporal stuff, the instant gratification, the easy way, the popular way, all of those things are were labeled by our staff and by the guys in our program as childish. What they wanted was something they could invest in, own, be responsible for, for a longer term. And I thought that was amazing. So they saw something beyond the temporary. And I think that's a better way to look at courage versus just something hopeful in the future they saw it. They saw that there is something better beyond. And so I asked them, I go, looking back now, if you were to speak to someone five years, your, 10 years ago, what would you have told them to do with your life? They said, oh, we would have told them to pick a different road. And I said, but you wouldn't have listened to that. And they said, because I was there and I tried to tell you that. Yeah, you're right. So what has to happen? An environment a belief, being around people that believe in you, an environment that challenges you and exposes you to new opportunities, a new way of seeing. He said, because when you see it, you want to change. And I thought that was just the best description. That's courage. When you see something beyond, you're willing to let go what you are to step forward into that. And we can't have a new vision if our head is always down looking at the the weariness of our feet that are in front of us. And just a word of encouragement here, 
it can be really difficult at times to let go of some of those old things because it's been something you're used to for so long. And the people that are in that environment now that are your friends or that are supporting you there, they might not necessarily transition with you when you leave that behind. So whether it's just an old habit that's not necessarily a a bad thing or a good thing, but it's something that you know you need to let go to take on something else, don't necessarily expect those people to support it because they might not understand it. Some of them might, and that's awesome. But I can I can tell you personally, there have been a lot of transitional times in my life where I've had to let go of friendships that just weren't, you know, weren't going to be beneficial to what I knew God was calling me to do or what who I knew he was calling me to be. And I had to let go of some of those things. And it's kind of interesting, some of those friendships that I let go of have come back around and have become deeper and stronger than they were before. And some of them, you know, are still gone. And, you know, that that's never a fun thing, but it is what it is. The other thing is it doesn't really matter what's on your heart to do, because we're not necessarily talking about, you know, you've got this idea to start this business and you need to go and, you know, become this CEO. It's not it's not about that. It's about what has your father put on your heart to do or to be. Maybe it's a new perspective um, and standing for something that you know to be true, even when it's going to be unpopular to do so. That takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to be someone in the background that doesn't get the recognition that other people get, but they're doing it because they know that's who they are. That takes just as much courage as anything else. So, I mean, maybe it is starting a business. We're not going to put that down at all. And if that is what's on your heart, don't let any cliche get in the way of you. But on the same token, try not to to line up what's on your heart with the world's measurement. You know, let God put it on your heart and walk in that courage and carry it out because you've got it in you to do it. And there's an entire family of us here waiting to celebrate with you when you take that step. You're in good company. I think that's a, a great insight, Jason. Um, and, you know, we do, like even in our program, we'll have them set some goals. What do you want to do? We really get to the question, what do you really want? And that could go a whole different directions. But you know what it does is it starts exposing what the, what's really there. And when they start even going after something that's probably not the smartest thing to go after, they start discovering when people believe and help bring that out. That's not the reason they want to do it. So that once they start seeing, wow, someone's behind me, but you know what I really want? This is where I want to go. I'll tell you a quick story. We had a guy in our program and our first director uh, really had a problem with tattoos. He comes from a northern area and, and all the people around there, it was more uh, Buddhist um uh, prayers and different things when the tattoos were going on. So he had a different view of tattooing versus just a pop culture, pop cultural tattoo. And so he kind of struggled with that. Wouldn't you know, the first guy that really connected with him was a guy that was fully tattooed, head to toe, had a full skull tattooed on his face all the way around. There was nothing on his body that wasn't tattooed. And so, but he was really catching on to this idea and knowing someone believed. And so he goes, what I really want to be, what I really want to do is I want to be a tattoo model. And so my director looked at me like, how are you going to respond to that? And I said, all right, so how do we start working forward to that? Where would you go to do this? And I just, rather than dealing with that question, we just started going down the journey of, all right, let's just look at, let's just, let's just kind of map that out as if that's the way to go. And so we got going and he started right now to plan 
And about two weeks later, he came back to him and said, you know what? I really don't want to be a tattoo model. I just want people to know I'm here and exist. I think what I really want to do is start helping people with art. Now, I thought that was a fantastic way. And what he did was because someone believed in him, even though I wouldn't have recommended that, I probably wouldn't even have been for it in the sense of the full application, but I kind of knew what was on the inside of him. And if I could get him to just start stepping forward in something, all of a sudden he started breaking that people wouldn't accept him because he was being accepted. And all of a sudden, once he started being accepted and people started believing in him, he no longer had to do things to get people to believe in him. And now he was changing course. It was a really powerful moment where his eyes opened. So when you're talking about courage and stepping out, again, don't look at what you're going to go do. Not about what you're going to do. Just look at who you are and be courageous that when the, when the dragon that's here to strip you of your identity you face it and beat it, when you're on the other side, you will have a new vision. You will have a, a, a passion that's probably been resonant in you for a long time, but you'll have the right perspective and the application of it, knowing where to put it. All right, everybody, that's going to do it for this week. We appreciate you listening in. Um, you can follow us on social media or on Facebook under Outbound Life. You can go to the website, outboundlife.org. You can comment on the podcast, and we will see you guys next week.